Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast. Friends and fiends of the pod, I, your host, comedian and film critic Nate Wyckoff, have to apologize up front because there was a recording issue that may or may not have been completely my fault that obliterated a fantastic discussion on the first film of this episode of New Year, New Nick, the Nicolas Cage month that we have set up where we talk about uh, a couple of films from each decade of Nicolas Cage's fantastic career. This first half, which does not exist in recorded form, so you will not get to hear it, unfortunately, we are going to recap in painstaking, concise, uh, shortened, abbreviated, but still super... uh, impactful uh, form for you. Uh, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the film and then we'll dive right in. So the film is 1993's Amos and Andrew uh, with Nicolas Cage and Samuel L. Jackson. We also have in supporting roles, we have uh, Nicholas Cadby. Sorry, not Nicholas Cadby. Dabney. Dabney Coleman. Why did I get that completely wrong? I've got Nick Cage on the brain and that's the best thing to have. But yes, Dabney Coleman plays a crooked police chief who, because of a racist uh, report by neighbors who saw the wealthy Pulitzer Prize winning author Andrew Sterling, played by Samuel Jackson, in his new home on a supposedly liberal leaning island getaway, uh, they think he's stealing stereo equipment instead of owning the home. So they call it the cops. And then we have the incredible and multi-talented Brad Dorif playing the dumb, dumb police officer who ends up opening fire on Samuel Jackson and starts a gun battle in which uh, only the police have guns. And Samuel Jackson is then uh, thinking he's under attack by racist neighbors. Well, the police chief, who has an election coming up, thinks, uh, realizes the mistake. And instead of admitting the mistake and probably ending his career as it should have been ended, Nicolas Cage, the wayward uh, white buffoon, not really dumb, but not educated, small-time hood, is a uh, quickly thrown in slapdash blackface and thrown into the house with a shotgun to play the role of the intruder so that police can say, uh, we were after him, not you, uh, Mr. Sterling. And what happens is, is the Andrew and Amos characters form a tenuous and unlikely friendship um, when they realize that they've both been played, 
and that they kind of have some similarities despite being of different race, different education status, different social status. And they end up pulling one over on the cops who look like fools as they were in the end. So there's a, a lot of great scenes in this. I would describe it as uh, two comedic elements, uh, films crammed into one. Anytime you have the press um, or uh, the um, black protesters in this film, which is problematic because the black protesters are lumped in with sort of the press and the cops as sort of bumbling, which is really not accurate. Um, I think in the 90s, we had a tendency I know we did. We have a tendency in films that deal with race to sort of want to say everyone is equal, but that also means it's everyone's fault. And the reality is, is those in power always have the power to change things while those uh, like our BIPOC brothers, sisters and non-binaries in this country and every country, they do not have the power. So we have to change things. They, they cannot be at fault in the way that, that we as the people in the majority and people in control are. But Anytime you have the cops uh, and the press and any group other than Nicolas Cage and Samuel Jackson's characters, it's a slapstick comedy. There are dogs chasing people. There's um, buffoonery abounds. When you have uh, Amos and Andrew together, you actually have this really nice chemistry between the two actors who play such disparate characters that find common ground and actually interact really well together. Um, Andrew Sterling is a Pulitzer Prize winning author on the Black Experience uh, in this movie. And Samuel Jackson plays him uh, as a strong but not action hero character, which is great. And it's nice to see Samuel Jackson in that role. Um, whereas uh, Nicolas Cage is a funny, endearing, although still skeezy sort of con man, um, two-bit hood sort of person who's just trying to get to Canada and thought this island was Canada because, well, he's just a dum-dum from Pittsburgh, apparently. So, and no shade to Pittsburgh. So <clears throat> let's, let's move into what everybody thinks about this film. I'll throw in my two cents first. I think this movie is actually a funny comedy that is less known in the United States than it actually is overseas, possibly because it was uh, promoted more heavily overseas because it's problematic racially right now because of that 90s tendency to want to share blame and make everyone seem equal in that way when now we know uh, especially with the advent of body cams and cell phone videos and the internet and uh, the interconnectivity between people of different races and socioeconomic statuses we know that there is a deep serious one-sided problem uh with this country that uh we as speaking to everyone on the panel, we're all Caucasian, we need to address this and help right the wrongs that are oppressing our fellow citizens and people. But beyond that, you actually have some nice stereotype breaking characterization in here, uh, both on Amos and Andrew. So I think it's worth a watch. I also think it's funny. It's uh, written and directed by E. Max Fry. It's uh, Fry's only directorial credit, but he did uh, write some phenomenal works, including Band of Brothers and uh, 2014's Foxcatcher with Steve Carell, which is a haunting film. So now we're going to go to Greg, our in-house Nicolas Cage expert. Greg Johnson, what is your take from Amos and Andrew? Um, well, the first time I watched it, I mean, I wasn't exactly enthralled. I thought it was a little bit, um, I don't know, benign, a little bit weak, um, maybe, maybe very racist. But on the second go, you know, it's a lot more um, smart than I remember it being. Um, it's very funny. Um, I think it really boils down to the ending, which has um, 
Amos and Andrew, you see that um, Nicholas Cage's Amos really doesn't have a pin on Samuel Jackson's Andrew versus the other way Samuel Jackson really has a pin on Nicholas Cage's character. Samuel Jackson kind of sees where he comes from. He knows that while he's not some beacon of wokeness, he's trying. He recognizes, hey, not all white people are just trying to attack me. And I think he really has Nicolas Cage's character. But Cage, on the other hand, is throughout is like, oh, like I know you married a white woman. I know it. I know exactly who you are. I know that you're this black guy that's trying to like distance yourself from your blackness, etc. And it, he doesn't really have him pinned. We see that Samuel Jackson at the end married a black woman and I feel like that makes the movie great is that while you have this lead up of shared blame like you said Nate and they're trying to learn stuff of each other at the end it really is Nicolas Cage's character is the one that has a lot to learn we even see him at the end still bad with directions going south on the highway not north so he's going back in the United States not to Canada like he wanted um, yeah, it's a great movie. Um, I, uh, I, I saw a lot of what would become Nicolas Cage's Oscar win in leaving Las Vegas in his performance. Um, so if you like, if you like that side of him, kind of the subdued complex character, you got that. Like you said about Samuel Jackson, it's very different. It actually reminded me a lot now that I'm thinking about it of him in, um, Die Hard 3, um, where he's not an action star, but he still gets these kind of great great tense moments um yeah i'd recommend it to pretty much anyone looking for a buddy cop film not about cops excellent tad uh first you mentioned the dog in our first run through of this film you want, you want to talk about the dog in this movie oh sure let's talk about the dog so um interestingly enough the uh upper middle class white liberal couple has a dog named rommel and uh, for those not, and I, for the few I'd hope that aren't aware of World War II history, Rommel was a uh, field marshal for the Nazi army. And uh, I kept waiting for the punchline for the fact that the dog's name was Rommel. As a matter of fact, Nick Cage's character constantly calls uh, the, 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 the lawyer, uh, Ra Mr. Rommel. <laughs> and he's like, that's not my name. But uh, I, it kind of, I don't think it ever got resolved in the movie. It's like, okay, what was the point of naming the dog Rommel? Is it just kind of just a, a like right out there, like, yeah, they're, they're kind of racist and they named their dog Rommel, even though that's hardly related, but still. It makes uh, me Adam. wonder, it makes me wonder if it's like um, the, the people who are defending having Confederate flags or Confederate statues stay when they're like, well, they might've been racist, but they were also great generals or like they were soldiers just like the rest of our, and you're just like, okay, you're clearly misunderstanding the point. Like if you were to ask that couple and the couple that you're referring to um, uh, who have the dog in this film are the ones that initially called the police and misreported this, this, uh, this crime that didn't exist and, and started the whole ordeal. And they also mentioned that uh, the uh, it's constantly the wife who ends up being like the third wife, at least of this, of this lawyer. <laughs> She's constantly saying like um, he, he was on the, um, uh, the Chicago seven case, seven, which, yeah. yeah, which of course is, is a famous for having um, being so completely mishandled and, and uh, terrible that, 
people who were innocent of crimes against the country were charged uh, with conspiracy to riot, all sorts of things, um, when, uh, and for decades have been characterized as villains. And only now do we have things with the rise of a successful docu-series and things like that. Do we understand that truly they were victims? Um, so a very interesting point. Uh, do, what do you think about the film as far as who would you recommend it to? Like, what's your take on it? So um, it's a 90s film. It has Nick Cage. It has Sam Jackson. And uh, it's very difficult to kind of nail a recommendation down, except for you'll enjoy the performances. They're great characters. And it's one of those movies. It's, it's classic 90s trying to get people into the room and kind of working out their uh, mutual issues. Uh, and I feel that's, a, that's sorely lacking in a lot of media these days, which is unfortunate, but that's the reality of the light of what we're living in right now. Well, well put. Mandy Longley, what was your expectation of this film and how do you feel now that you've seen it? Yeah, I didn't know anything um, about this film going in. Uh, and then I was left not knowing what to expect through the first 15 minutes, I think it does a really good job of setting you up to be uncomfortable about the racism of these neighbors and the town that they're living in and how the cops are handling things. And you're just not really sure where the movie as a whole is going to go with it. Uh, and I really like that that kind of continued. Like, I didn't feel like this was a particularly, um, like, predictable movie in its, uh, in its action and plot points. I don't really feel, like, railroaded on this one. Um, like, you know, like you're on a specific track from like middle to end of the film. I had some nice twists and surprises um, through it as um, Greg had kind of already mentioned as far as um, finding out Samuel L. Jackson's wife is actually black, but there were also some other ones um, I don't want to spoil for people who might watch this, but it was a good ride. Um, I also particularly liked um, the commentary and comments about kind of not really the original source material, but maybe the original title that they played off of, Amos and Andy, and um, kind of having a good jumping off point for those people who are interested in educating themselves on um, Black history, uh, Black um, media, and history in Hollywood and TV, uh, and the origins of that. It was um, like a, a really good thing. I ended up watching a documentary on um, on that original show, uh, the radio show, and that was then made into a TV program. It actually featured the first Black cast. Um, there were others, like, very closely on its heels, but this was the show um, Amos and Andy had the first Black cast um, on television, which was pretty cool to learn about. Um, what was the name of that documentary? The name of the documentary was Amos and Andy, Anatomy of a Controversy. It was in on 1983, and it is available on YouTube. And cool. it includes original clips from, um, from the TV show. And, and what's interesting about um, the Amos and Andy uh, original material and this film using the title Amos and Andrew to closely parallel and it's even mentioned by Andrew Sterling's character in in this movie he doesn't want to talk about it, and he doesn't want them paired their names paired in that way to be close to it is um, while many heralded the film as bringing black people to white audiences for the first time um, many uh, 
think tanks and, and rights groups and things like the NAACP sort of have, have cried foul with this uh, series, be, with that series, because it's heavily stereotyped black people um, very much in the way that uh, we, Disney did in uh, their infamous animated slash live action film Song of the South, which is still out of print and will, I'm sure, remain that way in the United States, but they still, my understanding is, publish uh, overseas and in other countries. And that film, of course, while it has fun music and is played as sort of another Disney children's movie with nice messages, um, it's, it's like a Huckleberry Finn without the grand realization of Huck Finn that Jim, the black character, is a person. Um, and they have Uncle Remus instead, who is just a jovial black slave who doesn't show any problem of any quality uh, or, or, or issue with slavery, which of course is absolute insanity. So uh, yeah, I agree with uh, all your takes on Amos and Andrew. I think that there are things that are problematic from a contemporary standpoint with this movie. Um, as you said, Tad, it's very 90s. It has a desire to paint both um, uh, black people and civil rights groups and white people and law enforcement as sort of equally dumb while equally um, equal in every way because we are all people. While we're all people, you cannot compare the mistakes and oppression caused by the overarching uh, majority uh, with uh, any, any problems that things like the NAACP or Black Caucus or anything have. It's just you can't do that because the people in power have so much more control over things than the people struggling for equal rights. So you kind of have, I think it was done in the nineties to make it palatable to a white middle-class audience who then would hopefully take away some new things like, wow, it's not shocking to me now that a black person could win a Pulitzer prize. Um, but today there's no excuse not to be aware of that with the, the advent of our inter interweb. So, <clears throat> Interesting film. I actually think it's quite well done as far as the script and everything. Uh, it is clearly a comedy, but it does deal with these heavy hitting topics. So um, if I could, I wanted to add to the, uh, the mythos of the long lost first recording of the Amos and Andrew review by us, <laughs> in which we were, of course, the funniest we've ever been, the smartest we've ever been. It'll never be recaptured. Um, but, but, but please, please listeners watch that documentary, man, you recommended look into the history, like Nate said of song of the South and like the splash mountain ride. I mean, there there's there's so much that that this movie kind of hints at that you just need to do some research into like black representation in film it's it's a lot and it's worth Absolutely. it Absolutely. and our uh we our black listeners or or listeners of color indigenous peoples all those things just like uh in the past write in uh, let us know what we think. If we got something wrong, obviously we'd love to address it. We'd love to have people on to talk about it who have different life experiences. So you can always reach us at Colton Classic Podcast at gmail.com and on Instagram at Colton Classic Podcast. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with Guarding Tests from 1994, only a year after Amos and Andrew. And we are back, Fiends of the Pod, with Guarding Tess from 1994. Now, I really like this movie. 
Um, I liked it when I saw it as a kid and it holds up for me today. I'm really excited to have our panelists talk about it and what their impression was. This is a film where Nicolas Cage plays a Secret Service agent in charge of uh, protecting a former first lady whose husband uh, died, we assume, in office of a heart attack. She's aging. Um, she's played by uh, the beautiful and fantastic Shirley MacLaine. Um, I think at this point she was like 59 in real life, so she's older, but she's not probably as old as she's playing. The plot is that she's incredibly difficult to deal with, and Nicolas Cage's character is very excited to be finishing up his tour of duty and going back to a different, more exciting post somewhere in Washington. And uh, lo and behold, the First Lady contacts the White House and the current president, which is, of course, her husband's uh, vice president, and says, I want him on for another tour. He's very angry, and the two butt heads in a, in a fight of wills it turns out that they actually form uh, a friendship and a mutual respect. And it also turns out that she has an inoperable brain tumor. And so she is sort of uh, going from a, uh, a shut-in post her husband's death to being a figure in the community once again and going out. She wants to do things she hasn't done since uh, she's been in this, pro, you know, in this protection program after the White House, like go out and golf and go to the opera and um, do dedications and things like that. So the turning point is when she is kidnapped. Um, and in the, in the final moments of the film, uh, it is really up to the person who knows her best at this point, which is Nicolas Cage's character, uh, Doug. So he is the one who sort of single-handedly leads them to her. And it does have a happy ending. Very, I think this is a very highbrow film. It's a comedy, but it's, um, it's, not, it's not slapstick. It's situational, surely, but it's a very much a character study between these two characters, the straight-laced but eager to move up the ranks and, and do bigger, more exciting assignments, um, Secret Service Agent Doug, and the uh, former sort of Jackie O style uh, character of, of um, Tess, who is of course the former first lady uh, and is very set in her ways and also very bossy. So let's start with our resident Nick Cage expert, Greg. What was your thought the first time you saw this movie and how did it change after you saw it again? Um, when I first watched it, I mean, I was definitely younger, obviously, so I don't think I appreciated the pace as much. Um, I remember watching it and thinking kind of, what are we doing? Like, it was definitely in a period where I, you know, I thought I knew Nicolas Cage kind of on the first go around. And this was one of those movies that I'm like, who, who is on screen? What, why isn't he yelling? Why aren't things blowing up? What's happening? Um, but the second time I appreciated it a lot more. Um, I loved the relationship between them. I appreciated Shirley MacLaine a lot more than I did the first go round. Um, Cause I gave her a time of day this time around and recognized that that was a stellar performance. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the only two things that really hit me this time that I'm like, how did I not really think about this after the fact? One is um, him shooting the guy in the foot and basically torturing him. It which is my has, favorite scene. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, it's such a good scene, but it ages like milk. I mean, you're like, what? If, if, if Amos and Andrew is, a, is about kind of pointing out bumbling cop ineptitude and racism, this film flies in the face of 
um, government agents should be able to do whatever the fuck they want because it gets results. It's, um, so that scene is fantastic because she's been kidnapped by her driver who she gave a job to. And, and actually, uh, we learned Doug has tried to fire several times um, because he doesn't listen to him. He listens to, to Tess and not to the Secret Service. And um, he is actually uh, has kidnapped her. And of course, Doug is the person who figures this out. And he's convinced that he knows where she's being held which of course he does and and yeah and the other secret service officer is like look we have to go we're gonna get this and she's like you can't wait she's been gone for over a day uh or and or or you know over 20 hours you can't like she she knows that her driver was in on it which means they'll never let her go she's going to be killed because they will never let her go knowing one of the culprits and um and he's like, I'm going to, I love the lines. Cause he's like, I'm going to count to five and then I'm going to shoot off a toe. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to count to five. I'm going to shoot off another toe. And then he's like, five, bam. And he shoots off his toe. And the guy's like, you didn't count to five. It was just, it's such a, it's that, I totally understand the frustration with the scene because it's a fantastic scene. It's what we would want to do if our loved one was in danger. But at the same time, it's the logic that, is was used for the legislation in the United States or not even legislation, the executive orders and things to allow torture of people in uh, uh, Abu Ghraib and all these terrible things that have happened because of the United States, uh, in, you know, intelligence worldwide. So it's like you, you want that to happen, but when you actually think about it, it is very problematic because you know, there's a reason you can't do that. At the same time, were my loved one in danger? I absolutely would like to think that I would be able to do that. You know, yeah. um, um, on the on the other hand, um, my, my my less um, serious <laughs> contention, um, Richard Griffiths uh, Griffiths plays uh, Frederick. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is Frederick? I feel like the first time I kind of just let it slide. The second time I really tried to pay attention to why is this guy here? I think he's a nurse, but I don't know. He's there to sing opera and be like token, like heavy comic relief, which isn't a great thing to have. So what's he there for? I I don't know. He's one of the people that is in the employee at the test household. Um, He's this, like you said, jovial, fat British man. And of course he's probably most recognized as uncle Vernon in the Harry Potter movies at this point. Um, But yeah, I don't, I, I couldn't figure it out either because you know who the chef is. And then you realize that the driver, Earl's the driver, but then you really don't know who he is. And I guess he's the nurse because he delivers a pill at one point, but you'd think if he was the nurse, he, cause, cause through most of the movie until she- They wouldn't put him in a suit. <laughs> suit, right. <laughs> um, I, but it would make sense because he goes out with them everywhere. So I assume that he's a nurse and they say he has a, she has a full-time nurse but we never really see him doing any nursing things. He's always just like making sandwiches and weird crap in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and you would think that at some point, because he's so jolly with everyone, that Nicolas Cage would have somehow learned from him that she has a brain tumor. Cause he doesn't know that. And she doesn't tell him until um, she tells him in a way that she plays off as a joke. He thinks it's a joke. She plays it off as a joke early in the film. Which is such a, a great twist. Such a great twist. I, because he's, she's like, she lists three things. She's like, I have an inoperable brain tumor. Um, 
something else ridiculous, and then I want to go to like, the opera. I bought you guys a Scud missile. Right, I bought yeah, you guys a Scud missile launcher, like yeah. and I want to go to the opera uh, in Columbus. Which do you think is true? And he's like, what time do you want to go? And she just gives him a date, and then they go to the opera. So, like, it's it is a, it is just fantastic. Basically, I mean, they both Nicolas Cage and Shirley MacLaine do an amazing job in this film. Shirley MacLaine has those like incredibly cutting eyes, like the almond narrow, you know, smile that she does, almond shaped eyes and everything. Um, and she plays it like her moods up and down um, between whether she's been drinking at night and is clearly depressed and feeling old, or whether she's in the morning getting ready for something. Um, and or how she's presenting herself to whoever's in the room because she very much has this and they mention this several times like Nicolas Cage talks to the president in this movie we never see the president but he talks to the president in this movie on several occasions um and he sounds very George Bush Jr-esque um although I believe this is during Clinton's term right um so uh but who's also a good old boy kind of so it's clear it's unclear exactly who they're trying to mimic but we kind of get the picture. It sounds like an American cowboy, which means he's a president. And, um, and he has this line at one point where he's like, he's like, Doug, you and me both know what a cantankerous old bitch she is. She can be, but not the American people, you know, like they want her protected. And, and it's just, and it's so right because, and I love in the opening moments of this, Nicholas Cage is saying his goodbyes to the, to the uh, other crew members at the, at her house and he goes to Washington and he goes to the office to get a new assignment and the head of whatever, I don't know if it's the NSA or whatever at this point is the head that's doling out the, the positions. Um, he's asking Doug questions about her and he gives this incredibly diplomatic, trained, yet very accurate depiction of her, which is like, she has many different sides as we all do. And it's not until of course, then he gets, sentenced as he feels it is to another term with her that he's like this is a nightmare like she is impossible um she's always running off and she on the few times she's out and she's all and she speaks to us like we're servants she treats them like you know like servants she wants them to go get her rabbit her you know golf ball out of the woods and bring her a snack things like that uh it's just it's, there's a lot of great scenes um i want to I know I'll let you guys talk as well, but I want to bust in on that pacing thing. I will say it is interesting because the first essentially hour of the film is just getting to understand their relationship um, as the relationship builds. It's not until the final 30 minutes that we get to the kidnapping. And when you see a synopsis of this film, you would think it's a thriller almost because there's a kidnapping and he's got a finder and it is literally not at all. It's like this character study drama where the kidnapping is a device used to show the progression of their friendship and their relationship to each other at that point, which I think is, is quite brilliant. Tad, ha, had you heard of this movie? Had you seen this movie? And what was your take after watching it for this episode? I had actually seen this movie when I was younger. I'm pretty sure that this was um, one of those movies that I sat down with my mom and watched uh, back in the 90s around the, probably the same time I watched Driving Miss Daisy because this movie kind of reminded me of that. Um, watching it a second time, because of course I have not watched it in between the 90s and now, um, definitely a great movie. Um, the pacing, as you said, was very weird. Like 
I was watching it and I was just like, oh, this is kind of a quaint comedy, Nick Cage playing a straight man. And suddenly she's kidnapped. And suddenly the whole tone of the movie changes. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And not only that, it's a very convoluted plot. Like the whole thing with her basically being buried underground, drugged. And it's like, what? Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense because if you're going to kidnap someone that high profile, you better stuff them underground. Otherwise you're going to get shot. And in fact, it's a miracle that the people who kidnapped her did not get shot. <laughs> yeah, and I actually, and I would, I would hazard to say that this might be based off of something that actually happened as far as this, that aspect of the kidnapping. Because I wouldn't be surprised. It's quite brilliant. And it's been used in tons of movies and spoofs all the way. Like it was in, it's in an episode of American Dad, you know, like getting buried underground with just an air pipe. Um, and they mentioned it in the movie, which is, you know, the excuse the kidnappers use is we were going to dig her up when it was time. Well, of course you weren't. Uh, you were keeping her alive in case you needed to show proof that she was alive. And then you can just remove the air hole and that's it. You remove the pipe and she's done and buried and that's it. Um, so it's quite terrifying. Uh, and it, it was an interesting play because you have, as you said, the quaint comedy aspect, but the setting of having a, a high profile protectee and a secret service team is of course the implication is that there's always danger potential um and so having that actually happen is, is very interesting mandy did you have more to say tad i cut you off no no that's fine all right all right good uh mandy <laughs> had you seen this before and what is your take now that you watched it this time i had not seen this before I was expecting something like Driving Miss Daisy, just based on the uh, the cover and, and the title. Um, I'm a big fan of Shirley MacLaine, so that was a huge treat to see her in this role, um, being very much her cantankerous self. Uh, definitely echoes of this, or I guess just her, like in uh, Down Abbey, like later where she plays like the... Uh, the kind of wild cowboy-esque American relative. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. Uh, again, like Nick Cage, like kind of playing it like a more cool character. Um, and I really enjoyed the pacing, although it was slow and not really totally knowing where things were going. Um, I kept watching the clock. I'm like, is something going to happen in this film? Because we're like an hour in. And like, this is really lovely, but also like, I'm not sure what they're doing here. Um, and then like to kind of see, like, I, I think my favorite part was like the moment where you kind of like, it comes together, like why she wants Nick Cage on her team, like why he's so important to her. And you see that like, he cared so deeply for her husband, the president of the United States, that he was like moved to tears at the funeral, like looking very, very upset about it. And he was like, oh, she wants someone around that cared for her lost loved one, like as much as she did. And to develop more relationship with that person to kind of like heal through her grief and like move forward, even though she also is finding out she has an inoperable brain tumor, but like um, maybe possibly have a bit more of a legacy there in kind of a familial sense versus um, her public role. I, I think that's great. And I think your mention that Shirley MacLaine is fantastic is undebatable. Um, she, not only is she great in this film, she of course has so many iconic roles. Um, 
and the trouble with Harry, Steel Magnolias, Terms of Endearment. Uh, she was even, in, as you said, Don Abbott, she was in, um, uh, she was even in, well, she was in Bernie with Jack Black. I remember she was in Bruno. Um, she's been in so many excellent uh, things and she's still acting and she is at 86 years old, I believe. So <clears throat> um, it, it's, it's quite a career and she comes from a skilled family. Her brother's Warren Beatty, who um, I think most people remember Warren Beatty probably from Dick Tracy in 1990. Uh, but it, she's a phenomenal actress and it's, it's, you know, she's, she's the, the kind of actor who keeps on giving regardless of, of age and as her roles change. I loved her coming out of the, uh, the like, I don't know, coma, being knocked out, whatever, at the end of the movie and, like, hearing about what Nick Cage was up to while she was kidnapped. Yeah. How and, long and, did it take you? Yeah. Oh, says, oh, you fired your gun? Oh, you just shot someone in the toe? Oh, that's a shame. You practiced so hard. <laughs> it's so good. And the other agent is trying, like, well, to correct the record, ma'am. And he, she's like, I'm not talking to you. You know, it's like, <laughs> and Nick Cage just smiles. Like, it's just, it's a really... Um, the relationship becomes something beautiful and it's just the kind of, it's that kind of relationship where it's, it's a mutual respect builds. And there's the great scene in the middle. That's really the turning point when he's blown up at her for the umpteenth time and she's blown up at him. And he's like, why don't you just request no de no security detail. You can do it. I know you can. I know you know that. And she does. And of course the president's like, we need a detail on her. You need to fix this. And he goes and basically the team stakes out the outside of her house for we assume a couple of days. And finally she comes out and is like, do you want to have a cup of coffee? And they end up having a drink and sort of bonding as, as actual people. And there's this beautiful scene where we understand her attachment to him is not, cause we don't really know what it is, right? Like he's, they say she likes you. And he's like, she doesn't like anybody is really his, his mindset. Um, and we don't really know what it is. He claims at one point that really gets her mad that she just wants seven men, no women, just seven men around her at all times. And she's all fired up. And that's when she cancels the whole thing. But then we, we see her as she's, she's every couple of you know, scenes, we see her watching at night, often drinking old um, footage of the inauguration of her, pre of her husband and things like that. And, and eventually we see her watching his televised funeral procession and in the front it's of course pans to her and all of their children next to her and things like that and you see uh nicholas cage's character who is a secret serviceman in their white house in the chair and he's crying and that's like that beautiful moment where you realize that's her connection to him she she trusts him and cares that he felt the same way about her husband or some aspect that she did, even though we don't know much about her husband. Uh, sounds like he was a good, a well-loved president, but he cheated on her. We find out all these things like, it's just not, it's, it's not a, even though it's about the husband, it's not really about the husband. It's about how the characters felt about the husband. And we get that in just that one scene with no dialogue from Shirley MacLaine or Nick Cage. It's just a television narrator. Um, narrating that clip of footage, just very effective use. I wonder if I'm, I'm, I always kind of forget about that infidelity with the husband. I wonder if it's supposed to kind of parallel, you know, they talk about, oh yeah, like Tess is cantankerous, et cetera. And maybe it's how you guys felt about the parallel of her and her husband were both 
by the movie standards, they were beloved to the American people. You see that it's a tragedy when he died. You see that the American people are worried about her even after um, she's first lady. And Nick Cage is the only person who really knew both, both of them mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on an intimate and real level and still liked them and still cared about them and still was there. You know, versus you don't, you see the son show up to visit the mom, but you never see the daughter, weirdly. Um, a little bit of uh, Peggy Sue got married. What happened to the other kid? Yeah. So. Well, and she even says at, at one point, she, she, when they were finally having a real conversation together as equals, she says, like, I don't blame my kids. They had a, a tough time. They, you know, we got into the White House. They got a really unconventional growing up. And, but yeah, she says she doesn't talk to her daughter or her daughter doesn't talk to her and her son only shows up in one scene to, to try and get her to endorse some real estate deal he's doing. And she says, sees it and says no. And he of course gets pissed and presumably just leaves. Um, so she really yeah, I also like to, I think to note is that Nick Cage is maybe one of the few people that knew that she was kind of the brains behind the presidency. Like the brains behind her husband's political um, career and success, um, and supported her and really saw her um, for her value, like her her smarts and intellect, um, stating like you know how she would have tried to leave them a message if she had known who was kidnapping her. Like like he knew her to that level to then look for the clue. Like not know, like not seeing the clue first, and then being like, "Oh, she must have known." Like, looked for the clue because he knew her. And there's an interesting touch too, because the clue that eventually, that initially leads him is one, the his team um, who are kind of pushed off to the side as she's kidnapped because they're seen as failures at that point. Um, they don't really believe the clues that are given, right? Like the, the driver is left unconscious with this empty syringe next to him with some drugs that would knock out an adult for like six to seven hours. And he has two like C-shaped burns on the back of his neck. And, and uh, the, the team who's trying to find her is like, well, you know, my connections in the CAA say that sounds like uh, some Middle Eastern terrorist organization a thing. And of course, it's not at all. Uh, it's this little rinky-dink, you know, ransom-style um, American, you know, couple trying to pull this, pull this scam. And um, and he's of course the one that realizes she'd fight, right? Like you said, she would fight. We know this woman; she would fight. What would she have to fight with? Well, the cigarette lighter in the car, and that's of course what it is. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 sort of that. It's just, an, as far as a detective story goes, even though it's just the last third of the um, film, it's a nice, it, it doesn't treat us like we're stupid and they're actually good clues and the way they're given to us um, are effectively placed where we don't piece it together right away. Uh, but I think that we are, you know, it's not, it's, we're not blindsided by it. There's logic behind how he figures out what's happened and we can follow it, but we wouldn't have put it together as quickly maybe as somebody else, uh, as he did. So I think that that's, and that's the key of an excellent mystery is when you have all the pieces as the viewer or the reader to solve the thing, 
but you still don't before the detective or whoever it is. You know, if you're not given the proper information, it's not really a mystery. You just, I mean, it's a mystery, but it's not a puzzle. You can't solve it. You never had a possible chance in hell of solving it. This is not that case. Um, so we see it in a very logical sense. It was very well done. This is directed uh, by Hugh Wilson. Hugh Wilson um, was a, a very prolific writer. He still is. Uh, oh, I guess he died in 2018. Uh, my apologies. But he, he's got a film still coming out. Uh, so there's a few things like that. But he did a lot of writing for um, really great sitcoms like uh, The Bob Newhart Show in uh, the 70s and then um, WKRP in Cincinnati in the 80s. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for the first Police Academy film. And then um, co-writing the script with him was uh, P.J. Torokve. Torokve? I am probably butchering uh, P.J.'s name, but very, she's an excellent writer as well. She also worked on WKRP in Cincinnati, and she died in 2013. She also wrote uh, the film Pure, excuse me, Real Genius in 1985 uh, with Val Kilmer. It was kind of one of his early roles. So some interesting, there's, there's good comedic talent behind this film, but I wouldn't, if I, if I'd been told that these two people with their credits have, have written a movie about um, a cantankerous old uh, first lady and a secret serviceman, I wouldn't have expected it to be this movie because this movie is a very realistic comedy. It's, it's not so much a sitcom as I've used multiple times. It's a character study. Um, in my opinion, and, uh, and, and a pretty good one. So we're going to wrap this up with who we would recommend this film to. Greg, who would you recommend this Nick Cage, Shirley MacLaine movie to and why? Um, I was kind of thinking a little bit about um, Family Man um, or uh, Trapped in Paradise, I think. Like if you, if you want a little more funny Family Man, if you want a little more grounded Trapped in Paradise and you're a Nick Cage fan, this is about where that would hit you. Um, otherwise, I um, hearing Tad talk about watching it potentially with his mom. Um, I think it's the perfect movie for like an adult child to watch with their parent, or vice versa. It's not it's not paced great for a young kid. I mean, maybe they'd find it fun, but they'd have to be a very astute young child. Um, but it's perfect for like an adult to watch with your parent. There's nothing really problematic in it other than um Nicolas Cage shooting a guy in the toe and presumably killing whoever is underneath them in the room below um but yeah it it, it was really really enjoyable um it it kind of refreshed in me why I like Nicolas Cage um he definitely believes everything he's saying and I think he works best when he has a powerhouse to work with like Shirley MacLaine um yeah, um, and also I want to say that the uh, the the all I think it's three bits with the president calling the first two times the cage and the last time to um, Shirley MacLaine um, were absolutely fucking hysterical. I loved him like just like no, I don't want to have no goddamn test problem. Why the fuck am I calling you? And just it, it it's just such a fun movie. And it's, it is, and, and the, the president, um, I, I don't actually know who does that voice part. Um, it's relatively easy to, to find out, but. Um, um, it says Hugh Wilson, and I don't see much else for his credits, Hugh, but. Well, and Hugh Wilson is the director, so that makes oh, sense. Oh, that makes um, a lot more sense. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, he does this great job of 
turning on a dime the way only someone with great power can because mm. he knows um, who he's talking to has to do what he says. So he's like, he always starts with the small talk and then, and then sort of turns around in that way that like a jaw trap snaps where it's like, oh, like, um, you know, how are things? How's Tess doing? Uh-huh. Well, she called me and said that you're being a goddamn asshole. Like it's just, it, and then it snaps over you and too late you realize that you're in deep trouble. Um, and every time he talks to Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage only has like, except for one or two lines about the rose that he breaks of hers. He, he says, his, his, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. I, I think so too, sir. Absolutely. Like, it's just this constant stream of like trying desperately to dig himself out of a hole. And it's just great. And I'm glad you never see the president. It's not necessary. And even more than not necessary, it's more effective to just have him as this voice on the phone. It really does elevate his character above everyone else in terms of um, power and importance. Someone did their research because as someone whose job involves talking to C-levels of companies that make lots of money, they're very astute. They understand that they can't just, well, they can, but it's much, they, you can get better results by, um, I, I don't like the term, um, you know, putting honey in trap or whatever the hell it is, because in reality, vinegar attracts uh, insects way better than honey does, but um, they will give you your your shovel to dig yourself out of your own hole they will be they will give you the cordiality to go you fu you done fucked up but um i'm gonna give you the opportunity to dig yourself out right now and uh that that voice acting was spot on in terms of how i've communicated with those kind of people in those positions right and ultimately it, it's just the whole film until until Doug and Tess have the relationship, until they understand each other with that over the drinks situation, there's not that clear understanding of why hierarchy is the way it is in politics, which is I'm giving you this opportunity because it's easier for me if you do it, if you succeed. If it were easier to say, you know, you screwed up and you're fired, you'd be fired. Yes, that's not, you know, that's not the situation. So when, when that happens, um, it, when you get a, something that rings so true in the back of your head in a film, it makes it a really special scene. Uh, and I think that, that um, Hugh Wilson and, and uh, PJ Torekiv, 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 oh, I wish I knew her name better, uh, did in this movie, they did a great job with it. So um, let's see, are we on to Mandy? To who would you recommend this film to? Um. I guess like if you want like a good character piece with a little extra spice in there at the end, <laughs> this would be a good one to go with. Um, you know, if, if there aren't enough kidnappings in Downton Abbey for you, like maybe this is a nice one to revisit at, at this time as we enter 2021. Excellent. Excellent. And Tad, uh, I didn't get to, to ask you, who would you recommend Guarding Test to and why? So Nate, do you ever get that feeling when you're watching a movie that it is an 80s movie that took place in the 90s? Yes. This is one of those movies. This feels like it was meant to come out in like the mid to late 80s and accidentally came out like half a decade later. Um, this is one of those movies I would recommend to people who definitely uh, like that feeling of the 80s nostalgia, but it's in the 90s, so it kind of has that 90s feel to it. But I also... This movie is kind of a, a perfect example of something 
I think in my head, I only call it Nick Cage effect because it probably doesn't exist or someone else probably has a better term for it. You get a really different Nick Cage depending on how good the movie you stick in him is. I've noticed, and yeah, Greg's nodding. He knows this is true. If you see Nick Cage flying off the handle in your movie and acting completely out of character, a fool, it means that you're probably a shit director and you're not giving him anything to work with. And he's like, fine, I'll do it myself. In fact, I need to make a meme now of Nick Cage sticking his hand in the glove instead of Thanos. Fine, I'll do it myself. You need to give him something good. You need to give him something to work with or he's just going to go fucking apeshit. And that's why the two Ghost Rider movies are terrible because he fucking had Mark Steven Johnson directing him. Well, there's that one outlier. What's what's that one movie where like he famously like like oh, what do you want me to do? You want me to like say it funny? You want me to whatever? And they're like oh, just yeah. just say it like Nicolas Cage, and he's like okay. A B C D E F. It's like it's as if like don't don't stick Nick Cage and George Lucas in the same fucking movie because that's exactly what you're gonna get because George Lucas can't direct for shit. I I would I would actually. I would own that movie. You, to the you, I know, I know. We all would. But, yeah. <laughs> it would be a train wreck, and it would be amazing. And- so, it, it well, yes. And I wanted to throw out this tidbit too. Apparently, um, Shirley MacLaine and uh, Nick Cage got together really well, and they actually bonded over a mutual love of animals. And there have been uh, many animals that they've adopted together. Um, so, uh, uh, there's a zebra named Mister Zed that they uh, that they adopted as well as a ferret named whiskers so um the ferret is unfortunately probably not with us any longer but zebras they have a long lifespan 30 years so i could still be kicking around out there um but yeah so i i that's a good one i i really greg i really like how you mentioned this is something an adult child could watch with their parents because i watched this with my dad um in the 90s and i really liked it but all i remembered from it was the detective part, the kidnapping part, what they found at the end. And now as an adult watching it again, I liked it as a whole because I really understood this, like a, these adult relationships that built. Um, and it's this kind of movie where it's perfect to watch in a situation like that with a mixed audience because um, nothing is terribly painful. Um, like y- you have moments of frustration but everything works out so nicely in the end and everyone gets kind of what they need. I mean, except for the kidnappers, they're arrested and go to prison, but maybe that's what they need. I don't know. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be them. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're potential murderers, so you don't really feel bad for them. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a great, that's, that's my recommendation too. Also, if you just want to watch a movie that's probably going to make you feel pretty good in the end, but it's not so sappy ridiculous that, you know you're just eating a piece of candy like it's actually well crafted um and it's and and you you won't there's no guilt associated with viewing it because it's a good movie full of great performances and solid writing from true industry veterans so strong relationship between a male and a female that is not based on sex yay yeah there you go yeah i enjoyed that it's i i think it's i actually think it's a masterpiece film it's kind of the the epitome of what an American um, full budget film is because it's suitable to a very wide audience and it does that without having to, uh, without having to cut corners and appeal to people in ways that 
are sort of pandering, you know, there's, there's no diarrhea jokes here. You know what I mean? Um, but I still chuckled. There's, um, there's no, you know, extensive gore scenes, but I still felt tension. So kudos to them. Well, that wraps up this uh, storied and uh, troubled episode of Colton Classic Podcast, but I am super excited for next week where we will tackle two more Nicolas Cage classics. And thank you again to our panelists and to you as listeners. Follow us at coltonclassicpodcast.com as well as on Instagram at coltonclassicpodcast. And please be sure to uh, tell your friends. We've got all sorts of stuff in the pipes. Uh, we have zines and other things available on our website as well if you want to get something physical. And I'm thinking we'll do a giveaway this year with some awesome swag, both from Colton Classic Podcast and movies. So check it out. Thanks so much and have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me. But what's more important are the rights privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com, where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.